Good morning, Connection Point Church. How are you doing? All right, good response. If you are new today, welcome. I'm very glad that you are here. Uh, my name is Joel Halpin. I'm the pastor of this church. And we have been going through a teaching series called Mastermind, where we have been talking about how if you can change your thinking, you can actually change your life. And so we have gone through uh, and kind of set a framework of how to do this. We, we said it starts with prayer. And then we said uh, in the second week that you have to be self-aware. You have to realize reality. You have to realize where you are before you can really change your thinking. And then uh, on the third week, Phil Collins, he, he taught us that we have to identify our strongholds and we have to identify the truth that will break down our strongholds. And then the last two weeks of this series, last week and this week, we're really applying the words that we have uh, learned in the first three weeks. So last week we talked about training our mind, that we can actually train our mind to think differently. We talked about meditation, we talked about focusing on God's word, but today I want to give you a tool that I think will absolutely change the trajectory of your life. And I say that not uh, um, haphazardly, my life I believe has been changed by the tool that I'm going to give you today, by this uh, process. And so I want to start us off though by pointing out something that you probably know. And that is that you have choices in the way you interpret things. In fact, most of us in here interpret truths different than the person sitting next to us. In fact, I'm going to play a dangerous game because some of you might be uh, tempted to just sit and not respond and, and be quiet today, but I need some interaction today, especially if the energy is low. So I'm going to give you uh, some opportunities to respond um, to, to questions that I'm about to ask you, but we're going to do this. I'm going to give you the responses I want because if I just let you respond the way that you want to respond, I don't know where this will go, okay? First one is, we want to do this together, okay? Everybody put your thumbs up. If you like what I'm saying, okay, I want you to just give me a thumbs up. Try not to do too many woohoos or whatever because it could get uncomfortable. You'll see what I mean. Uh, do uh, a thumbs down. If you don't like what I'm saying, thumbs down. All right, some of you might, uh, you might give, me a, give me a shrug like, huh, I really don't care. Okay, go ahead, practice that. And you might want to do the, I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. I don't want to respond at all to this, okay? Now, I'm just going to give you a circumstance. I'm going to give you... Uh, maybe a word, and what I want you to do is just respond naturally, if you dare, and I want to just point out that we can have the same event, the same information, but you will interpret it totally different than the person next to you. It may be good to you, it may be bad to them. This could get dangerous, right? All right, the Patriots are in the Super Bowl. What do we think? All right, we got thumbs down, we've got I don't care, we got a few that are thumbs up, okay? Same information. The Cowboys are not in the Super Bowl. What do we think? Oh, that's bad. And then we've got some of the people. Of course, there's always got to be a few, right? All right. You're about to hear an awesome hour-long sermon. All right. Some of y'all are lying and some of y'all are happy. That's good. I appreciate that. Some of y'all are honest, right? And some of y'all I saw. Now, all right. All right. Let's take a breath. Donald Trump is president of the United States. Okay, well, I see some of the wise ones. See, it gets dangerous, okay, but we understand the same information. Some of you are bold. Some of you are bold. Okay, you lost your job. You lost your job. But you hated your job. Oh, okay. All right. Um, your child made it home by 10. 
Hey, AM. Oh man, not good, right? What I want to show you is that we all have pictures that we're looking at. We have events that happen, but you can look at the same picture as the person next to you and you get to to make a choice. Is this an ominous picture or is this a sunshiny, happy day picture? You see, you have a choice of how you frame your circumstances. You have a choice of how you frame your life. It can be ominous. It could be happy, but you have a choice. But most of us never recognize the choice that we have and the way things happen to us. In fact, one of the main things I want to combat today, I want us to recognize this. I cannot choose what happens to me, but I can choose how I frame it. Today, we're going to talk about framing. And here's the the issue that we have when it comes to how we frame our circumstances, how we frame our life. And that is that we all assume we're pretty good at framing the events. And in fact, if you gave a thumbs up or a thumbs down, you're probably pretty confident you're right and they're wrong, correct? Now, what most of us don't know is that the way we interpret events, on the whole, most of us are influenced by outside sources. We're influenced by things that we don't even know are happening to us. And because of that, we have wrong thinking in our lives. You would never admit this, but you are making wrong decisions and wrong influences. You are allowing them to to permeate your thinking all the time and you never recognize this. What you also don't realize is that you have default thoughts. And in fact, we've touched on this a little bit, but scientifically, did you know that you have what's called neural pathways? You have default thinking that make your thoughts more likely to repeat themselves than for you to think and correct bad thinking. So for example, think about walking through a field, um, use this illustration, you're walking through a field of tall grass. The first time you walk through it, it could be kind of difficult. But the second and third time you walk through it, eventually you make a little path. And then the next time you get out and say, I got to walk across this field. What do you do? You don't even think about it. You just go down that path because of course, that's the way you go because you've created a pathway. Your mind does that all the time. You are constantly creating a pathway with your mind with your thoughts. You are constantly interpreting events by the pathways that have already been created by your experiences and by the way you have framed your life. But again, you have some influences you may not recognize. In fact, scientifically, we know you have dozens of what we call cognitive biases. Have you ever heard of a cognitive bias? These are experiences or or influences that you don't even know are happening, but yet they are influencing how you think. You know, I was thinking about this for me and I have several that I, I, in fact, I pulled up a list as I was preparing for this and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of cognitive biases. And I realized there's a few cognitive biases that I have. You know, one of them is what we call the halo bias. Scientifically speaking, it's been demonstrated that if you find someone attractive, you also think they are kinder than they actually are. Did you know that? In fact, some of you, you think, man, my wife is so sweet, and she might not be sweet. She's just really pretty. Did you know that? In fact, I get accused of this all the time. And if you're a wife, if your husband's always saying, I'm not even going to go where I was going to go with this. I'm going to stop that thought right there. I'm going to grab it captive, and I'm going to discipline that like I talked about last week. Now, 
Man, it's dangerous when I'm up here sometimes. Um, this halo effect, though, I, this, I get accused of this by my children all the time because I have this precious little daughter who I think is the prettiest, cutest thing that has ever been created in God's green earth. And what happens is like last night, when she's a little whiny and she's, you know, kind of, we were waiting at a restaurant and she wasn't acting the way that the rest of my family thought she would act. But I, I kept getting on to my boys. Hey, will you quit pestering her? She's a great little, she would be happy if y'all weren't around. Whereas the reality is, it could be that I have a bias, that I just happen to think she is always right and can't do anything wrong. Now, what you need to understand, though, is... This is wrong thinking, and in fact, it could be harmful thinking to her if I allow this to continue. I have to fight, no matter how much I want this bias, no matter how much I want to believe it, I have to recognize this is dangerous thinking in the long run if she's always right and I never correct it. You know, we have a self-serving bias as well. Almost all of us have this. Self-serving bias is when you think that you attribute your successes internally but you attribute your failures externally. Let's give you some examples because we do this all the time. Somebody's late, and what do you say? Ah, oh, they're just irresponsible. But you're late, what do you say? I was in traffic. I had a lot of things happen to me I couldn't control. Maybe you're kind of like me. Sometimes if I win a game, I say, man, I'm just good. I'm just good at this game. But I lose a game because you cheated. Because something else happened out of my control because I obviously would have won this game. Somebody misses a deadline at work. What do you say? Man, they're irresponsible. I just can't count on them. But you missed the same deadline. What do you say? Well, if you knew all the things that were coming at me this week, it wasn't my fault. It just happened. You see, we tend to give that benefit of the doubt to ourselves. We give it internally. We know our intentions, but we, we look at people, other people and we, we put on them that, man, they must just be a bad person. We have biases all over us. We have wrong thinking. And if we can't frame our mind in a way that corrects our wrong thinking and puts on us the thinking that God would have us, God says we must take, or the, 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 God's word says we must take on the mind of Christ. We must renew our mind. If we can't get in the habit of this, we will find ourselves going in the wrong direction. In fact, the key phrase we've said every week is that your life is flowing. It is moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. And if your strongest thoughts are wrong thoughts, if they are misguided thoughts, no matter how right you think you are, if your thoughts are wrong, your life is moving in the wrong direction. So the question we have to answer today, how do I frame my life with a godly perspective. How do I frame my life with a godly perspective? This is a discipline of being able to interpret the events, the same events you may have over and over again said, this is bad, this is, why does this happen to me? And you may even have these, these thoughts that come into your mind. Maybe you're trying to overcome a habit or a sinful habit, and, and in your mind you think, you know what, I'm just an awful person. God obviously has abandoned me, or, or this following Christ isn't working because I'm not getting any freedom like I thought I would get. And you have this wrong thinking, and it's a default thinking. It's the path you always go. How do you train your mind to say, you know what, even though I'm still struggling with this, God is doing a new work in me. And that tomorrow I'm going to walk in a different direction and this is no longer going to have a hold of me. How do I begin to move in a new direction? How do I create new neural pathways? Well, you have to make a choice with every thought that comes through your mind. How can I reframe this from a godly perspective? 
Now, I'm going to give you two ways, and I'm going to use the passage that we used last week, or the same, uh, I should say, the same letter we used last week. This is one of my favorite uh, parts of the Bible. It's Philippians chapter 1. And the first thing we're going to learn is that we have to pre-frame our experiences. I have to pre-frame my experiences. If I want to frame things in a godly way, the first thing I have to do is I have to pre-frame them. Yes, it's a made-up word. Go with me, though, okay? Now, Pre-framing, I want to give you an example of pre-framing just so you understand the power of pre-framing experience. I heard a story of a girl who was coming home from college after a rough semester. And so she got home and she began to confess to her mom and dad about kind of how the semester had gone south. She said, you know, about halfway through the semester, I failed a test and I was so distraught that I did something I'd never done. I went to a bar and I got drunk. And she said, this was so out of the ordinary. I didn't know how to handle it. And a guy was there and he just started comforting me. And, and I ended up going back to his place. One thing led to another and mom, dad, I got pregnant. And then she, she, she began to tell him, you know what? I've got, you know, it's not all bad though. I found out, hey, I'm having twins and, and, and at least we're going to have twins. And, and I know that you're not okay with this, but I want to let you know I'm trying to make this right, she said. So she said, I decided that I'm going to move in with him because he, I can't marry him yet. But when we can marry, we're going to get married. But as soon as he's out of rehab and gets a job, I promise you, I promise you, I'm gonna, gonna, we're going to get married and we're going to make this right. And then she looked and she said, by the way, that's not true, but I did fail chemistry. And... and <laughs> All of a sudden, you realize it could be worse. That's called pre-framing, okay? We can pre-frame things in our mind. And, and the Apostle Paul in, in, in Philippians chapter 1 is going to show us how you can pre-frame almost anything. And to show you what was going on, you see, sometimes the Bible is hard to understand if you don't know the context. It's hard to understand the text if you don't know the context. And so I want to give you some context. I'm going to read from another part of the Bible. This is from Acts chapter 28. Now, the book of Acts was written by a man named Luke. He was a doctor. He was a very smart guy. And he writes the account of the early church. And then we call it the Acts of the Apostles because it's kind of the first acts of the church, the first things that God did in the church. At the end of this, he's following the story of this man named Paul. Now, Paul was uh, doing well in life. And then he became a Christ follower and he changed everything in his life. And his life went from being rich and doing great to struggling, but seeing a lot of God do a lot of incredible things. At the end of Paul's life, he, he's beginning to, to get a bigger vision of where this could go. And in fact, he begins to say, you know what? The whole world could know about Christ if I could just get to Rome. And so Paul, who's in Jerusalem, says, if I could just get to Rome, then I, I, could, I could meet with the most famous people in the world, people that have connections all over the world. And so in his mind, Paul says, I've got to charter a boat to Rome. And in fact, he even wrote a book called Romans. Paul's letter to the Romans. That, that letter is kind of a fundraising effort. He sends it to a church in Rome so that they can know, hey, I'm going to come and preach this. Hey, will you send me money? Will you help me get there so when I get to Rome, we can see this thing go worldwide? Luke tells us, though, about Paul's real journey to Rome. He never did charter that bus or charter that boat. If he chartered a bus, that would be even better, right? Man, could have been in comfort. Now, on his, 
opportunity to go and spread the gospel, he actually gets put in jail and he gets accused of some things by the Jews. Um, and he was Jewish, but some Jewish men accuse him of blaspheming, which is speaking against God. And that's actually a capital offense. And so Paul finds himself in a dire circumstance in which he's arrested. And, and to get out of this, he appeals to Caesar, which is really taking a gamble. Um, it's, it's kind of upping the ante because he knows he's not guilty, so he takes it before a higher court. And unfortunately, this higher court also has the power to kill him as well. And so in Luke chapter 28, this is the very end of Luke's account, he tells us about how Paul after surviving a shipwreck, was shipped off to Rome in prison, and he arrives, and he's in prison, shackled, with one soldier guarding him. And then in verse 17 of Acts 28, it says this. I'm just giving you context. You don't have to read along. It says, after three days, he called together the local leader of the Jews. When they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I've done nothing wrong against our people or the customs of our father, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem to the hands of the Romans. And they had examined me. They wished to set me free at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objective, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, I've asked to see you and speak to you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing these chains. And so we get to this this time in Paul's life where he's in chains and he's, he knows and the people accusing him know he's not guilty. The, the Roman authorities know he's not guilty, but yet because there's such a backlash by these Jewish men, he's stuck. And so he's trying to convince them, but yet they won't budge. So he sits in a jail on death row. And what does he do? He writes a letter from jail in chains to a church in a place called Philippi. And this is a church that he had helped start. And these are people who are praying for him. These are people who have put all their trust in, man, Paul is doing some great things. We want to support him. We want to get him to Rome. And now he's been, he's been arrested. He's on death row. Man, what do we do? Our pastor's in jail. How are we going to even, can we even continue as a church? And, and Paul writes a letter to him. And I want you to think about if you felt that God was calling you to do something and that he had this vision in your life that was so big and when it came time for you to go after it, instead of having the success you hoped for, you find yourself wrongly accused, thrown in jail, and now sitting on death row, most certainly you're going to be executed. You Not only are you not going to get the life you wanted, but you're actually going to give up your life by some people who are wrongly accusing you. The letter I would have written would have been something like, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me really sucks. What has happened to me has shown that God doesn't really exist. In fact, God has abandoned me. In fact, I don't even think any of us should be here. But that's not what Paul writes. Paul takes this circumstance and he preframes it. He, he, he sends it to the church in Philippi. And this is what he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to, advanced, to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest of, of all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much 
more bold to speak the word without fear. Man, Paul takes this circumstance that almost all of us in here would say, that is awful. That is not fair. God has obviously left him. Why does he even hold on? And he writes a letter and he wants to set an expectation that, hey guys, it's going well here. It's going well. In fact, not only did I make it to Rome, woohoo! Now I've been thinking about who I could share with and get this, they've actually got me in what they think is my prison, but really they're making these guards sit here all day with me. And so all day, I got this guy who has to listen to me preach and he can't leave. Now who's in prison, okay? I just sit here and I'm preaching and I'm telling him how great Christ is. And now I've got visitors coming in and these visitors are people who are just curious about me. They're just, maybe they've heard about me. Maybe I've never met them, but I've got people coming and they're seeing me preach in chains and they're becoming bold. And so now we've got this group of Christ followers who were scared in Rome, who are becoming bold. In fact, they're willing to risk their lives even when the Roman persecution is becoming very, very serious. And in fact, there are people that are now beginning to say, you know what, I'll risk my life too. If Paul can be that bold, I'll risk my life. Man, this is an awesome example of somebody who can say, you know what? I know I'm going to get to Rome and no matter how I get there, I'm going to pre-frame this. I'm going to make sure by the time I get there, I see this through the lens of what God is doing, not through the lens of how I thought this was going to go. If you don't understand that circumstances, life is going to happen to you. How you frame it is going to determine the success you have in life. For me, a few months ago, I had just an example of how powerful this idea of pre-framing something is. I went to a choir concert of my son, Clayton. He's in choir. He's a great singer. And I love listening to Clayton. But the thing is, is my mind, when I would go to these choir concerts, is I love listening to my kid sing, but I don't always like listening to your kid sing. It's kind of like I love it when my dog kisses me. I do not love it when your dog kisses me, okay? That's just this thing about me. It's probably wrong, but that's something that I'll just cop to, okay? So I'm going to a choir concert. It's going to be about an hour, hour and a half, and I see my son isn't up there except for a few songs, and so when he's not up there, and by the way, we're on the second row and the choir director's in front of me. So my wife made it a, a point to say he probably saw you the whole time. But I, I would, when my son wasn't up there, I would just pull out my phone and I would put my head down and I would look up scores. I would, don't know what I was looking at. I was just reading and just trying to pass the time for the next time my son would sing. And then I would look at him and I would watch him sing. And then when we were done, I would be done with it. I was just kind of putting in my time was my mentality. And when my, my kid was singing, I would enjoy it. But other than that, I got in the car though and my wife gave me a couple of nudges, we'll say, okay? And she said, I'm so mad at you. She said, I'm so disappointed. Do you realize that the choir director saw how disinterested you were? And I was like, okay, well, he'll get over it. He's a big boy. I don't know. You know I said, and then he's like, do you realize that he's your son's choir director? That might even get back to, but do you realize that your son, and by the way, my son is in the backseat hearing this, and do you realize that he knows you're disinterested? And I was like, well, I watched him sing. I wanted to see. And my wife was, she was pretty persistent. She says, listen, 
If you're, if you're uh, unable to, to, to be there and want to be there, you understand that everybody feeds off that Bible. Everybody understands that you're not interested. And then my son, at first he was just kind of ribbing me. He has a gift of sarcasm. And uh, he says, man, dad, I didn't know that you're such a bad person. And he starts all this stuff and I'm okay. And then he says, on the tail end of his sarcasm, he says, hey, if you don't want to be there, just don't come. And I couldn't tell if it was still there, I couldn't st- but I, I, I heard it loud and clear the way that I think it should have been heard. And I realized, man, this was an opportunity that was important to my son. And not only is it something he's good at, it's something he enjoys. In fact, I've watched my son watch his other choir sing, and I'll see him in an environment that he thrives. I'll see him hanging on the words, you know, hoping that his friends are doing well. And he's kind of riding with them, and he's interested with them, that they do well. And I can see just the circumstances. It's an environment he, he does well in and he loves to be in. And I realized that by me devaluing it and, and not being interested, that not only was I not being fair to my son, but that it was actually I was missing on an opportunity to connect with him just by connecting with something that he appreciates and that he likes. And so I made the decision the next time I go to one of these things, and we've had several since there, uh, since then, that I've made the decision, you know what? I can't wait until I can go to this choir concert. Even if I'm canceling other things, which I have a standing appointment usually on Tuesdays, and so I'm canceling. But hey, I get an opportunity this Tuesday to connect with my son, to see my son happy and thriving. Even if he's not up there, I see this opportunity that I was missing out on. I had to actually say to myself, you know what? I can reframe this experience. I can, I can pre-frame this before I get there. I can say to myself, this is an opportunity that I was missing out on. I was thinking wrongly, and now I need to think rightly. You have to understand you can pre-frame your experiences. But what I want you to hear is, it could be something that maybe to you, you're like, hey, that's great, Joel. Your experiences with your son, that's, that's a little thing. If you knew what I was having to pre-frame, maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you've lost a relationship. Maybe you've lost a loved one. You know, what I want you to see, though, is the scale of pre-framing goes from a choir concert to a man sitting on death row, a man whose life is hanging in the balance, yet he can still pre-frame it and say, I'm going to go into this experience anticipating a move of God. There is a powerful, powerful lesson if you can take your experiences, the ones you know you're about to, to come at you this week, and you can say, I am going to pre-frame this. I'm going to get ready to see what God is going to do, even in that thing that I am not looking forward to. The next uh, thing you can do besides pre-framing your experiences is I can reframe my experiences. You see, if you know you're in, if you're anticipating a hard week, if you're anticipating a tough time at work, if you're anticipating uh, getting cut off in traffic, you can get your mind ready for that. But sometimes life just hits you in the face and it's hard to be ready for it. It's hard, so you have to reframe what happens to you. Now I'm gonna tell you that the text we're about to read changed the entire course of my life. This is to me the most important thing that I had ever read and probably have ever read. And I mean that because this idea of reframing impacted my life in a huge, huge way. You see, Paul is 
in many of our minds, he's this super Christian. You know, it's, it's easy to look at historical people and see, well, they just had it all figured out. They're going. But I want you to understand, here's a man alone on death row. And he's getting some visitors, but he is alone. And, and he understands that he's probably not getting out of this. If you know anything about the time, this was, it was a few years before. This was probably in 60, the, the late 60s um, AD, right before the fall of uh, the Jewish temple when Rome was going to come in and basically take over everything. And there was about to be persecution. In fact, there were about to be Christ followers set on fire and used as candles to light the way. You understand it's about to get very bad. Paul is looking at this and he doesn't really think he's getting out of it. He is a man on death row who's pretty certain he's about to be executed, probably in a painful way. Yet he's writing this letter to people and he writes this joyous letter. And this is what he says to them. He says, yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, understand, he, he's speaking here of hope, of keep praying for me. This is going to keep, keep having that faith. Jesus is about to do something incredible here. It's going to deliver me. And in Philippi, they might think one way, but Paul knows what his deliverance really is going to be. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed but with full courage now, as always, whether I'm on death row or whether I'm, I'm living life free and to the fullest, now as always, Christ will be honored with my body, either, either or whether by my life or my death. That's a weird thing to say when you're writing this joyous letter. I, Christ is going to deliver me and, and it's going to be to his honor, whether by my life or my death. And that's looking at a perspective that most of us would have a challenging time doing. And he goes on, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now understand some of the things that Paul wrote to Rome in, the, in his letter to the Romans. He says, I have died with Christ. I have been resurrected with Christ. I therefore live for Christ. Paul had this mentality that when he became a Christ follower, he died to his old self. He even says that in his letter to the Romans. I died to my old self and now I've got this life and I'm not living it for me. I'm living this whole life the way that Christ wants me to live. And if I die, hey, it's great. I'm not gonna be in chains. I'm not gonna be shackled to, to these thoughts and all these things I'm trying to overcome. I'm not gonna be in pain. I'm not gonna be hurting. I'm not gonna be in depression. I'm not gonna be in despair. If I die, better. And he goes on. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. I'm going to see Christ do great things through me. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now, I want to just give you some insight into the first time I ever read this when I was in college. And I had been struggling I wouldn't even say struggling. I'd been succumbing to depression for years, over 10 years by the time I, I read this for the first time. And not just depression, but suicidal thoughts. And, and I was someone who grew up reading my Bible every day. Even in high school, I would read my Bible. And so my mind was, hey, I'm a Christ follower. And for some reason, I've got this cloud of depression, of despair, of hopelessness that follows me around, even though I feel like I'm doing pretty good. And, and, and I had this thought 
If we have this promise of heaven, if I believe as I do that Christ really did rise from the, the, the grave and he really did ascend into heaven and he really is reigning and he's made a promise that if we will just follow him, we will see a place where there is no tears, there is no pain. If that place exists and it's in the life after this one, I had such a longing in my depression that it wasn't that I was selfish and I just wanted to hurt anyone. It was that I was in such pain. I just wanted to be with Christ. And I can't tell you the first time I ever, I never knew this was in there, that somebody else had had the same thought I had had. Man, life is hard. Sometimes I don't want to continue in this life, but I'm hard pressed because I know I'm supposed to be here. I know it's not good. I can't give up my life, but my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. And I just resonated when I heard that because that was my mindset. But what he says next reframed everything about my life. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And in fact, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. I had lived a life up to that point that had a lot of struggle, not struggle that that my parents were great, my brothers and sister, they were great, everything was great, except I just had this cloud of hopelessness. And I desired to to leave this world, and it was a strong thought. But when I saw Paul say, wait a second, I died to my old self, and this life that I'm living now isn't about me, it's because God has a purpose for the other people who need to glory in Christ, who need to have joy, who need to have the hope of Christ and the hope of the future. I read this and immediately gave my life to the ministry. I decided, hey, even though at the, at the time I had just uh, changed my major for the fifth time, in fact, I had gone to undecided because I realized I don't know what I want to be, I don't know what I want to do. I had just almost failed out of school. I was in such a depression when I read this, but all of a sudden my life was reframed with a purpose that I never saw. I exist to bring glory to Christ. And the way I do that in this life is I remain in the flesh so that I can spur on my brothers and sisters in Christ so that they may have ample cause to glory in Christ. Paul's ability to reframe even facing death, even knowing his death is certain, changed everything about when he writes to his church and say, hey, I'm gonna fight this. I'm gonna do everything I can to come see you again because I've got a purpose that is bigger than any struggle I'm facing. And Paul will push through. He will write other letters. He will do everything he can to spur on the name of Jesus. If I'm going to have a successful mindset, if I'm going to win in life, if I'm going to see God do great things in my life, I have to be able to reframe my circumstances, which means I have to reject wrong thinking. I have to reject any thought that is not a godly thought, and I have to be able to reframe it according to who God says I am, to who God, or to what God says I'm supposed to do. Now, What's interesting to me about Paul is that, in my opinion, he's 
the most influential, he's one of the most influential people in the last 2,000 years. But here's a man who died, executed because his, his fellow Jewish friends abandoned him. And in fact, they could have gotten him off of this death sentence, instead, but they, they put their thumb on the button and they did everything they could to make sure he was executed. He could have died hopeless, he could have died helpless, but instead, he was writing letters of hope and joy, knowing that whether by his life or his death, God would be glorified. If you can get in the habit of understanding every hard thing that comes your way can be reframed. And it may be in the little things, but it's also in the hard things. And some of you have faced things way bigger than I've ever faced. Some of you have lost loved ones and gone through pain that I do not know. But I know that just as Paul saw the work that God was about to do, the same hope is in you. Jesus Christ died on a cross and he rose from the grave and he gave hope to all of us that in him our lives have meaning, not just in the hereafter, but in the here and now. My hope for you is not that you give your life to the ministry, although if you're a Christian, I want you to realize you gave your life to the ministry. You gave your life to something that is bigger than you. If you call yourself a Christ follower, understand you may be bummed about the Super Bowl. You may be bummed about the guy who cut you off at work or going to work. You may be bummed about what you didn't happen, the raise you didn't get, but understand that there's a bigger, bigger thing going on here. And the way that you respond to it, people are watching and people are going to find hope when you find hope in the hard circumstances. People are going to find meaning and purpose when they see you find meaning and purpose, even in the hard things. I'm going to leave you with two thoughts. I heard this, another preacher said this, and I thought it was good. You know what? The, uh, he said, a, a buzzard finds dead things, and a hummingbird always finds nectar. You know why? Because that's what they look for. And I thought that's a powerful thought, to go through life looking for the nectar, to go through life looking for how God is going to use this painful experience or this great experience for his glory. The thought we're going to close on is this. I will not interpret God through my circumstances. I will interpret my circumstances through God. I will not interpret God through the pain I'm currently feeling. Because the only constant we have in this life is the creator who created this life. He is going to exist beyond whatever your circumstance you're, fa you're facing right now. The bad diagnosis, the pain that you're going through, the only thing that doesn't change is God. And if you can get in the habit of saying, I will not interpret God through my circumstances, I will not look and say, why is God doing this to me? But understand, this is happening to me, and there is a good and powerful God that is going to exist even after me. How am I going to glorify him in this? If you can reframe, I'm telling you, if you can change your mind, you will change your life. Let's pray. Lord, as we end this series, as we go back to work tomorrow as we maybe go back to our homes and know that the broken relationships we've been facing last week are waiting for us, whether it's at home or work or school or wherever we're going this week. Lord, I pray you'll open our eyes up to the ways we've been thinking wrong. Understand that maybe we're not victims. Maybe 
things don't always happen to us that are bad, and we always are the ones that never catch a break. Lord, maybe this week we go in there and we pre-frame, we get ready for what you're about to do. And even when I get the results or even when I, when I have that hard conversation or even when I'm bombarded by a circumstance I didn't think was coming my way, I'm able to not just react, but to respond, to be able to reframe my life as a life that has been given to you. And no matter what happens to me, I will glorify you. And because I glorify you, I will have a purpose. I will have meaning that will push me through and allow me to reframe everything about my life. Lord, I pray that the people in this church who hear this message are different tomorrow when we go, are different when we get at home today. But people find a joy in us that cannot be explained except for the risen Christ resides in our lives. The Holy Spirit is changing us and we are a new creation every day. Lord, change our minds. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.